0: We are bombarded with countless images from advertising and the media and Disney, and none of them are integrated or related. We're just drenched in images. We don't know what they mean. We don't look at them as metaphors and symbols, but we don't teach anybody how to use the, the images, what they indicate, what their energies, what their mythic or spiritual resonance might be. We're just drenched in Unrelated images, whereas traditional cultures had a much more coherent, integrated set of imagery that they offered their people so they could pass through these type of psycho-spiritual experience experiences. I'm, I'm, I'm.
1: Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast, I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, psychotherapist, educator, and author, Edward Tick, to talk about his latest book, Soul Medicine, Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, Oracles, and Pilgrimage. If you're interested in hearing more about Ed's personal journey, I recommend also checking out episode 80 of the podcast. For many decades, Ed has devoted himself to studying and practicing depth psychology and the ancient Greek healing arts, and has led pilgrimages to Greece and Vietnam as a guide for those seeking a form of holistic healing beyond the limits of what modern medicine and psychology can offer. In his new book, Ed delves deeply into the philosophical, mythological, and cultural origins of modern medicine and psychology in an attempt to recover their archetypal roots. Drawing on both ancient wisdom and modern depth psychology as well as stories of healings from his more than 25 years of guiding Vietnam veterans and others on pilgrimages, Soul Medicine offers a vision of how we can all use ancient healing philosophies and practices to achieve holistic healing today. Before we get to our conversation, first a little housekeeping. As I mentioned in the intro to the last episode, I'm hoping to have more conversations with less well-known folks who have found soul recovery and healing through the creative arts. If you're someone who fits that description or know someone like that, please feel free to reach out via Instagram at RevealingTheSoul or email me at hello at brianjames.ca. If you'd like to support the podcast and show your appreciation for my work, there are a few ways to do so. The easiest is to simply share the podcast with a friend or your social network. You could also take a moment to give the podcast a review on whatever platform you're using. That simple little act helps tweak the algorithms that otherwise keep an independently produced podcast buried under the deluge of big money, corporate and celebrity podcasts flooding the space. Another way is to make a financial contribution of some kind. You could send a one-time donation via PayPal or join the Growing Medicine Path Patreon community and School of Soul Studies for just a few bucks a month. You can find links in the description below. Some thoughtful listeners have let me know that they'd like to do something a little more personal by sending a gift. So I've started an Amazon wish list full of items that will help me continue to create and improve the podcast and facilitate my music practice, which is my main artistic outlet these days. Lastly, I want to offer my heartfelt thanks for simply listening, whether you have financial support to offer or not, your attention and interest in the conversations I host on the medicine path is a gift without you, there would be no podcast, so please let me know you're out there. It gives me a lot of inspiration and energy. Every time I hear from one of you, whether that's through a comment on the YouTube videos or Instagram posts or through a personal message or contribution. Now, I'll leave you with this blessing from one of my favorite teachers, Martin Prechtel. Long life, honey in the heart, white roads paved with the eyebrows of the moon, which is sea foam, yellow roads, all color roads, which are paved with abundance, from the tail of the morning star, which is a deer, no evil, 13 thank yous. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Edward Tick on the medicine path. Well, Ed, it's, uh, it's really good to see you again.
0: You're looking well thank you brian same here happy to be with you again
1: yeah and i'm really happy that uh, the new book that we talked about last time you're we on the podcast it's out and um, so we're here to talk about soul medicine healing through dream incubation visions oracles and pilgrimage and you know in the book you talk about how this is really a, a culmination of something like 50 years of doing this kind of exploration and study and work and pilgrimage to Greece. What's it like uh, now that the book is out, you know, this um, document of all of these years of work and all these different interactions with people and with this culture. I mean, what's it like when that is finally out in
0: the world? (sighs) Well, like everything else human there, it's ambivalent. (laughs) On one hand, it's a joyous achievement. Um, It feels like the climax of decades and decades or a part of my life's work. Um, As you know, I had an earlier book called The Practice of Dream Healing that was out 20 years ago. So I uh, feel an extraordinary sense of um, accomplishment and satisfaction that the work has gone on for several more decades. And the work has been influential in Greece. Mm. uh and say uh, say a little word about that uh, to our friends listening uh my work f- focuses not exclusively but primarily on Asclepius the god of healing and the practice of dream healing in the ancient world uh but i also use other ancient practices uh my doing this work in greece has helped inspire modern greek healers to go back to their own traditions and uh and work in the old spiritual traditions. So now uh, others are doing Asclepian work. Uh, some people are working with the Orphic mysteries, some with the mysteries of, uh, from the Eleusinian mysteries of Demeter and Persephone. Uh, uh, there's much theater, uh, Dionysian theater work going on, but uh, sacred theater, not entertainment theater, therapeutic mm-hmm. theater. So it's really exciting to be involved with uh, Greek colleagues and some American colleagues who are doing this work and continuing to help bring back the ancient ways, as you also do in practice, but to bring back the ancient ways for modern healing. So all of that is extraordinarily fulfilling and putting together a volume that encapsulates another 20 years of research and practice and experience is great um sealing things between the covers of a book is wonderful and also nerve-wracking because Mm -hmm. it's there it's permanent and so the part of the ambivalence is um wanting it to be received well and to have a good life in the world and being unsure of how that's going to unfold Uh, also expecting some either being ignored or pushback from conventional people who think uh spiritual paths are new agey and wool and not real. So I haven't gotten any yet, but I anticipate some. Uh, And I guess the last thing I would say is that I have a really deep glow of um, honor to have been doing this work being somewhat influential or impactful with the work and feeling deeply with my whole being that I'm serving a divine purpose. I'm serving the gods and goddesses. And mm. so I, I am a servant of the divine through, mm. through this work. So all of the above.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, just to address one of those concerns or hopes that it's well received Um You know, It's one of those books, when I started reading it, I just felt such a a resonance, um, such a joy to see how you put all these things together. It's like, you know when you find a book and the person writing is speaking your language?
0: Yeah. And -hmm. it just
1: hits you and it's like a big yes, like, oh, I'm so glad that Ed put it down like this and Mm -hmm. kind of laid it out. Because you do this great job of uh getting into the history and incorporating the work of jung and hillman um talking about your own journey it's you do a great job of weaving all those things together in the beginning and and uh getting into the etymology of the words uh so it's fantastic i'm really just so grateful that uh
0: you gave us this book
1: it's already made it onto my recommended reading list for um my community. So thank you. Wonderful.
0: Thank you very much. It's really exciting to stand Plato and Jung next to each other, for example. Yeah. Uh, and them and see their similarities. More than say similarities, see their deep relationship and how with different language they were trying to bring us many of the same lessons. And so the ancient and the modern, uh, well, it's an illusion that the ancient and the modern are Profoundly separated in time and space. Of course not. It's uh, really joyous to be helping to uh, to uh, uncover and reveal the archetypal pa- stories and patterns that we all live in all times and all places.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's also joyous and um, fun to share some of my experiences on this journey share modern people's experiences of uh, the pilgrims that I travel with and the Greek people who have participated and likewise to stand them against ancient testimony and again show the universality of these uh experiences and practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so in a way I, I really appreciate your feedback and I feel like um I'm pretty good at jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> yeah. Putting all of these Disparate pieces together that really have profound relationship to each other need each other and give us a genuine holistic vision when they're all um, uh, reconstructed in their proper relation
1: yeah well I mean this this brings us to kind of the central topic that brings uh, these different figures together and these different practices ancient and modern together, and that soul which Appropriately enough is often seen as a, a kind of binding agent between matter and spirit uh, between you know me and you and and things like that so can we start with this big question of like what is soul? how do you conceive of soul
0: That's a huge question that I'm going to answer very quickly, just from my perspective uh, rather than go through so many different esoteric dimensions and descriptions, which are valuable. But for me, it's good enough to say our soul is the drop of the divine that's been planted in each one of us. Hmm. So the little bit of God that's in you and me, my friend, that's Hmm. our soul. And the all soul is all of it and all of the God, all of the universe, all of the divine. And we carry a piece of it. In us, and we are invited and challenged to deepen it, unfold it, deepen it, and uh, bring wisdom, develop wisdom through our soul experiences, and hopefully and ideally give that back to the world when we're alive. And I hope it goes back into the universe as we pass. Mm -hmm. Jung believed that too. He believed that uh, he finally came to believe God is unconscious. And it's our becoming conscious and, and developing awareness that makes the universe conscious and that that's what we bring back, give back to the universe when, as individuals, we pass. So mm-hmm. it's beautiful vision. Works for me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, he came to it maybe a few thousand years later than the... The vedas you know which <laughs> suggested the same thing that we were created to reflect back the beauty and wonder of the cosmos of the creation to the creator right, right. Um, you mentioned uh, being a servant of the divine uh and you invoked this figure of asclepios who i happen to have a, a little figure of here he's one of my patron deities of of the work that i do um and I wonder for people who aren't um, aware of Asclepius or maybe have heard the name and don't know who this is, can you talk about this uh, ancient doctor of souls?
0: Can you tell us a bit sure. about him? Yes, thank you for that invitation. Uh, I'm going to comment on the, the word of being, uh, being a servant first. Uh, For our friends listening, Asclepius was, uh, I guess not first, second. (laughs) Asclepius was the Greek god of healing, and I'll talk about his tradition and practices in a moment. But I want our friends to know that our modern psychological words for that profession and practice come from this ancient Greek healing tradition. So psychology Psychotherapy, psychiatrists all originally came, uh, they are of ancient Greek origin, and they came from the Asclepian healing tradition. So, psyche, uh, are we learning in in the modern world that psychology is the study of the mind? No. Etymologically, historically, spiritually, uh, the root of the word psyche means soul, and logi comes from logos which is the untranslatable Greek term that means something like the order and meaning of the cosmos. So psychology is not the study of the mind, it's the order and meaning of the soul. And in our healing, spiritual healing efforts, that's what we're working to help uh, our people restore, the inner order and meaning of their soul and in balance with all of their own parts, with each other and with the cosmos uh so and psychi- psychotherapist is also comes directly from this tradition so again psyche is soul therapeia meant to serve or to attend so again literally a psychotherapist is not a mechanic trying to help us fix our childhood dysfunctions but a psychotherapist is a servant of the soul meant to guide the soul in its profound holistic healing and psychiatrist also. Yatros means doctor. So in the ancient tradition, a psychiatrist was not a medication dispenser, as most of them unfortunately have become today, but rather literally a soul doctor in charge of the guiding the journey of the soul from its afflictions to its healing. So those all come from the Asclepian tradition. Asclepius was the Greek god of healing. It's interesting, strange, and uh, curious and tragic to me that while all of us learn something about Greek mythology in high school and college, um, we don't learn about Asclepius. He's not included as one of the major deities. And he hardly even appears in most of the books on mythology. So, yet he was the healer. He was extraordinarily power, uh, popular. He was the last pagan god to be eradicated by early Christianity. As they attacked the different deities, wiped out their temples, destroyed their statues, Asclepius was the last one. And as the others were being destroyed, he wasn't only seen as a healer, he was also seen as a savior. So when Christianity came, there was actually a rather easy transition because um, early Christianity also used his practice of dream healing, which we'll talk about. And early Christians, if they didn't destroy his statues, they often just renamed them Jesus Christ. He's in a robe. He's in sandals. He's walking through the wilderness with his staff. He's got long curly hair and he and he's beloved and a healer and a savior. So Asclepius became Jesus as uh, ancient Greece transitioned from paganism to early Christianity. All that being said, Asclepius was the son of Apollo. Apollo was the god of medicine, of music, of oracles. And he gave those gifts to his son Asclepius. And Asclepius had a mortal mother named Coronis, from the word Corona, so the mother of light. Uh, so uh, there too, the healer and the savior of God in Greek mythology came from a divine father and a mortal mother, like some other healers and saviors we've heard about. <laughs> so there too, we have an archetypal pattern replicated in the Greek world. We know of Asclepian healing that tra- uh, that was already fully developed uh, and traces back to about fourteen or fifteen hundred BCE. And that it originated in the mountains of northern Thessaly. And then over time and centuries, migrated all over uh, the Mediterranean world. And uh, the core healing practice was called dream incubation, which is in the subtitle of my book, Healing Through Dream Incubation. It's not, it's related to, but it's not, What we consider to be ordinary dream work. It's more related to a Native American vision quest or an intensive initiatory experience, like going for a walk in the outback to become, to go through your rite of passage into elderhood. Asclepian sanctuaries, we know that there were more than 320 all over the Mediterranean world, and not just in the Greek world, but they stretched from Egypt. In the east, all the way to the Iberian Peninsula in the west, and from uh, lower northern Europe, the Caucasus regions, they were in Romania and Bulgaria and those countries, uh, all the way to northern Africa. So, this was an extensive healing practice all over the Mediterranean. And it is the origin of scientific medicine and psychology today. How this happened was Sclepius and his followers wandered all over the mediterranean world kept opening holistic healing sanctuaries and they're related to what we have today also so in asclepian healing sanctuaries people would receive uh, they would our modern healing sanctuaries are in part modeled on theirs uh, so like esalen institute or omega institute where we can go and get many or very many of the complementary healing practices The Asclepian sanctuaries were like that. However, there were some differences. The patients got all of them. You didn't go and sign up for the dream retreat or sign up for uh, an acupuncture uh, retreat and workshop. But you went into the sanctuary and received acupressure and nutrition and uh, gymnastics and psychotherapy, and astrology readings, and participated in tragic theater, received color therapy, hydrotherapy, every healing modality that they had at the time, they applied in the sanctuaries to achieve holistic healing. And that wasn't even the core of it. Uh, And that's where our holistic sanctuaries end today, assuming that some or all of those practices are going to bring us back into health and balance, spiritually and physically. There was one further practice that back to our term was called dream incubation. And after a person was in the sanctuary for a time and it was not a set time, they need to be called forward into the next step of the healing process. So they look for a dream or a vision or a synchronistic event that indicated now it's time to go before the God of healing. The most profound and uh, sublime step to take. At that time, the patients went, entered, uh, after praying appropriately, sacrificing appropriately, they went into a special building that was set aside only for this purpose. It was called an abaton, which translates as the place not to be entered by the unbidden the spiritual powers have to call you in here they have to be ready for you as well as you ready for them and in the Avaton, people either they slept earlier on they slept in small caves uh, enclosures in mountains later on in the as the classical era developed and there were big beautiful healing sanctuaries there was a separate building for this and so they slept in a room on a couch called the klinikos so we get the word clinic from this Practice as well, and the clinicos was the dreaming couch, where they they laid on the couch and they just prayed and fasted and meditated and slept for as long as it took to receive a healing dream or a vision of a particular form uh, the god Asclepius or one of his three daughters who were all also healers and they had their own sanctuaries. And or one of his totem healing animals, usually the snake, but also the dog and the cock, the rooster. Uh, Any of these or some other figures would come to us them in dreams and visions, and either heal them directly in the dream while they were asleep, so they really literally woke up healed, or else give them the prescription for how to heal themselves. And we have. Oh, well over a thousand testimonies from ancient Greek that have been translated that describe the specific healings that people achieved. In these sanctuaries, some of them did have both medical and spiritual medicine practiced in tandem. And so medical instruments have been found in some of them. And in many of them, there were no medical instruments at all. It was purely uh, spiritual healing practice. and. We do have testimony of many different form, um, experiences of what we would consider miraculous healing. So, for example, the sanctuaries were very popular with warriors. And uh, even in the Roman era, when the Romans came through Greece and sacked a Roman city, they protected the Asclepia and they used it for their own wounds. So, for an example, um, a warrior who might have had an arrowhead embedded in his spear from a a combat wound. And it was so deep and complex that it could not be extracted by surgery, by human surgery. That warrior would go to the sanctuary and go through drinking incubation and have a dream that Asclepius came to them and performed a dream surgery. So the warrior saw it and experienced it in sleep. And when he woke up, his body spontaneously expelled the arrowhead without physical surgery. So psychic surgeries happened. That's one example. Another example that we probably wouldn't do, a modern person, would, uh, was a man who had been blinded, slept in the sanctuary, and was told to make a poultice combining mashed acorns with ashes from the altar of Asclepius from the sacrificial fire. He made the poultice. He applied it, and his vision was restored. Again, no other medical intervention. So there are many, many uh, examples of this, as we said. Um, and as we hear, the first example was an actual dream surgery without medical intervention. The second one was a prescription for not go to the local pharmacy, but go to the altar and go to the forest and gather these. Uh, these uh, ingredients and this will be the healing uh, remedy that you need. So we have, uh, as we sa- I said, over a thousand of these. And uh, and this was the core healing practice of the Slepios. And this practice lasted for about 2,000 years. Only, as we said earlier, only ended by early Christianity. However, We know this also from world history that when one culture and religion invades another culture, they often build their sacred sites on top of the previous cultures, sacred places. So churches were built on top of Asclepian sites sometimes. And dream incubation was still practiced under the protection of some of the early Christian saints. And their figures came to people in dreams. And in Greece and elsewhere, that's still happening. So I've taken testimony from modern Greek people who have had uh, had dreams in the exact same formula, except that the figure that came to them in the dream was a Greek saint rather than an ancient Greek god. But same thing, bringing a healing or telling them how to uh, achieve the healing. Hmm. Uh, So the... The tradition is less recognized but it's alive it's part of our human spiritual inheritance and it is ongoing. And finally I as you know and we share uh, I lead pilgrimages to Greece. I've been doing this since uh, 1995. Many of them are documented in my two books and people today achieve remarkable and sometimes miraculous healings in the same formulae that the Greeks experienced in ancient times.
1: Yeah. That's one of the great things about um the Asclepian tradition is we do have case studies from that time, testimonies of these healings uh which is just amazing for us to have. Now, I wonder if could you share a story from one of your pilgrimages of a, a contemporary example of an Asclepian dream healing that you've witnessed? Sure. Happily. Just, just to give people an idea, because it may seem like kind of so far back, so far fetched. uh, But like you're saying, um, it's still available to us now. So I wonder if you could just share a small anecdote.
0: Uh, Sure. Uh, I'll tell one of my own stories.
1: Good. You don't have to ask for permission.
0: (laughs) No, though. I have permission to tell. Oh, To all of our friends out there, every story that I tell in my book uh, by a modern person has been used with permission. I never break that code of confidentiality. And a lot of people want their stories told because like you and me, Brian, uh, people have experienced this, want others to know that it's real, it's true, it works, and -hmm. it's available to us. So uh, you know this as well. Uh, I use pilgrimage as Uh, One of my main healing tools. So I've led by now. 22 or 23 pilgrimages to Greece and also 19 to Vietnam. And uh, so, as you know, I bring veterans, their loved ones, their survivors, peace activists, spiritual seekers to Vietnam as well. I'm going to tell a story that puts these two together. Great. Um, About. Five, six years ago, um, I had a serious back disability. I was diagnosed with spinal stenosis. Uh, I'm not going to go into the misdiagnosis that was involved. That's part of our story, too, is how to interpret our afflictions correctly. So mine was very misinterpreted. But uh, I was on a cane, on, on two canes for a number of years and could barely walk. And I was in Vietnam, leading one of my pilgrimages there uh, on canes. I had my group in the Mekong Delta, where we stay with a wonderful, beloved man named Tom Tian, who was a Viet Cong veteran and has become a great friend and a healer for American veterans. He's got a remote place on the right on over the Mekong River, house on stilts. So I was afflicted. I was on two canes. I was really in pain. And while I was sleeping in my little bunk bed, my cot in a little bunk room over over the Mekong River, in the middle of the night, I had a dream that a giant snake came crawling out of the river, climbed the pilings, crawled into my room, up my cot, crawled, crawled on top of me, and bit me in the left thigh and sank its fangs really deeply in my thigh. So deeply that when I tell the story, I can feel it still. That was, as you can hear, that was exactly in the version of an Asclepian dream healing. The snake appears, the snake bites us, the snake causes changes on our body-mind system. I woke up a few hours later after that dream. I had no pain at all, and I didn't only walk without canes. I was running. I was dancing. I could climb hills again, whereas I, I wasn't even able to climb a, a set of stairs before without terrible pain. And it, that freedom, the, the, the dream showed me that my body can heal that my condition was not only physiological but something shifted from the dream such that my soul was able to carry my physical wound in some kind of balance and harmony and i could be put back into balance and i could heal and so the pain um the the affliction did fade back over time however i was different because i was absolutely sure that my body mind system could do this healing and that I was right to not take the medical advice that of course medicine was pushing surgery. Of course, they don't know what else to do. And I was refusing it, but for sure refuse it and keep working on my own healing uh, to come fully back. And I have neuropathy in my feet, but besides that, I'm really good now. And, um, that was one, uh, of these scupping healing experiences that I had, uh, In Greece, uh, we do create rituals and formally incubate people. But this is also uh, proof, an example, that this kind of healing could come to us spontaneously Mm. if we know and we're open to this tradition.
1: Yeah, that's great. Do you have an example of a a prescription-type dream where someone was given a suggestion in the dream and you actually followed up on it? took that leap of faith and something shifted.
0: I'm laughing, smiling, because I'm going to give you my own again. (laughs) That's good. It's safe to do that. Good. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So um, I was teaching a course, an adult, uh, uh, for adult education on the ancient Greek tradition. And we were discussing and studying and discussing Asclepius. And There was a medical doctor in my class who loved the tradition and was very philosophical, but he also was very scientific and thought it was BS. And said, these things could not happen. A God doesn't come to us in a dream and give us a prescription that heals us. Um, I think these are fantasies. These are myths that uh, the ancients wanted people to believe in, to believe their system and their practices, but they didn't really happen. So I was troubled that night and wondered how there's so much scholarship and evidence from ancient times. How can we demonstrate to this gentleman that these are real? They happened in ancient times and they could happen today. Before the next class, the next week, I had a dream. So another one of my diagnoses has been irritable bowel syndrome. I was it's through my family. It's transgenerational. My grandpa, my mother and my grandmother all had it. But, of course, that doesn't deal with the psychological and spiritual dimensions of why I'm struggling with digestion. Um, but just uh, the, the medical, it's genetic, it's transgenerational. Okay, so that week after the doctor said this doesn't happen, I had a dream. Again, I wasn't incubating myself. This happened spontaneously. But in my dream, I was in my bedroom at home, and a doctor walked in at night, and a doctor walked into my bedroom while I was asleep, and he was bearded and gray hair and carrying the caduceus and in robes. And he walked right up to me lying in my bed and looked down and addressed me and said, I hear you've been calling me. I hear you've been calling me. And I, the dream said, yes, I have been calling you and I've been asking for help for this affliction for a long time. And doctors can't help me. They don't know what to do. Can you help? And Asclepius in my dream said, yes, I have a remedy for you. I want you to take an enema made of a mixture of lemon juice and vinegar and take this enema and it will help heal your entire digestive tract. And then he left with a smile. So the next day I called this doctor student friend of mine and I told him about the dream and he said, that's amazing. That's fantastic. That's really strange. I've never heard of anything like this. And I asked, yeah, but well, doctor, what do you think? Shall I take the enema? He said, oh, now you're our scientific lab rat. You have to take the enema. <laughs> However, my only suggestion is dilute it with water because that's a st- strong a- a- acid mixture. Yeah, okay.
1: I <laughs> would take a so, real leap of faith for me to do that. But
0: yeah, well, really, right. Dilute so, it, so I did. <laughs> <dilute it. laughs> I made it. I diluted it. I also have statues of Asclepius, as you do. I set up um, a a sacred treatment room in my bathroom, so I had a statue of Asclepius and burned um, uh, incense and lit candles and prayed, and then stepped into the tub and I took the enema. And I'm happy to report, joyous to report, that the very first thing I experienced was an extraordinary. Flushing of my whole system with joy and energy and well-being. Like it cut through whatever corrosion was in my lower digestive tract. The the acid cut through the corrosion and gave me an intense and immediate cleansing. But something um, psycho-spiritual happened as well because I was taking acid into my system to burn off the excess bitterness, resentment, despair, alienation that I had accumulated over my life cycle, kind of acid in my system that needed to be burned off. And it's the homeopathic remedy as well. Poison cures poison. Take acid to get rid of the excess acid that's in your system. So uh, I've Took the enema several times during that week. I did experience not complete healing, but extreme improvement. And I still use that occasionally when things aren't so happy downstairs in my body uh, to continue to support uh, my cleansing and my reception of good energy and of joy. Mm. So I had the direct intervention dream, and I had... A remedy dream mm. and so i've got the evidence that it works from my life and so it gives me that much more confidence to apply it to others i can tell plenty of stories of other seekers if we want as well
1: that's great the spontaneous nature of some of these healings too it reminds me of um i think jung carved it above one of the doorways at his Bollingen house uh, called or not called, the gods the gods will be present, um, and it's kind of true, right? Like what, yes. when you tell that story about uh, a appearing in your dream, you know, as you would expect to see him. There's like maybe two ways to read that, right? Like one is that well, the god Sclepios came to me in my dream. Another way, maybe the kind of modern psychological view would be well my psyche created the image of asclepios in order to facilitate a healing you know that the image came from within rather than being an autonomous entity that came into me or something you know yeah i mean yeah. that's something that you know i've wrestled with over the years how to kind of take these experiences how to understand mm-hmm. them or interpret them like the way you started out, I remain kind of ambivalent about it. I go, both could be true, but this was my experience. The experience felt completely real, and that's how I want to accept it. How, how
0: do you deal with that mm-hmm. conundrum? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Thank you for it. Uh, let's remember that Jung stressed that the most important matter uh, in our dream work is not the interpretation. Interpretation can kill it. It's the experience itself. So I'm with you. The important thing is that I had this experience, not literally where it comes from. People do ask me if I literally believe in the goddess Scutbius, that he's somewhere in the universe. And I actually um, always answer it doesn't matter. Because whether it comes from without and enters us or comes from within and is created by our deep psyche, as we're both sharing, the critical matter is the experience that we have, and that we receive the experience uh, and really and embody it so on one hand, on one side, uh, I say it doesn't matter. what matters is having the experience and working with the living imagery. Mm-hmm. That being said, uh, there are some people um, on all sides of the ocean who believe that these gods literally exist. And mm-hmm. the religion of the 12 Olympians In uh, not too long ago, I don't remember when, but 10 or 20 years ago, was legalized in Greece. It had been oppressed for, because of orthodoxy for for millennia, but now it's legal. And some people really believe they're there on some kind of spiritual Mount Olympus and appeal to them that way. Much more commonly, people accept these figures as archetypal. Such that uh, the archetypes, do they exist deep in the psyche or somehow in the universe? Well, yes. Both. And yes, right. Yes. And it's the same thing. <laughs> okay. So um, mm-hmm. in the Greek tradition, when people went to the healing sanctuaries, there were many, many statues of Asclepius and of his daughters, Hygieia and Panacea and Yasso, and uh, snakes were everywhere um, in sculpture, and there were live snakes as well. And there were these, the testimonies that we have today were usually carved in stone, and that's why we have them. So there were statues throughout the sanctuaries and marble. Uh, Sculptures and friezes showing the healings and containing a testimony explaining the healing. What this did was program people to a certain set of imagery that over two millennia had become standardized as healing imagery. Mm -hmm. So people with whatever dreams they had, the, the dreaming in the Asclepian sanctuaries became more uniform because they were all programmed to a certain type of healing imagery. Uh, In our culture, that doesn't exist much anymore for us. We are bombarded with countless images from advertising and the media and Disney, and none of them are integrated or related. We're just drenched in images. We don't know what they mean. We don't look at them as metaphors and symbols. Um, Some of them help grow our kids up a little bit. Most of them babysit our kids, um, but we don't teach anybody how to use the the images, what they indicate, what their energies, what their mythic or spiritual resonance might be. We're just drenched in unrelated images, whereas traditional cultures had a much more coherent, integrated set of imagery that they offered their people so they could pass through these type of psycho-spiritual Experiences. And so, finally, to your original question, to me, Asclepius, and some books call him this as well as I do, is that it's a, an archetypal image, or it's an archetype of the divine physician. And somehow that is, as we both said, both built into our psyches and somehow also built into the universe and somewhat universal. The image of the physician is universal, but how He or she shows up in different cultures, varies according to the culture. So medicine Buddha is a healer archetype. Kwanam, Kanyin, is a healer archetype. Um, Native American shamans participate in the healer archetype. Asclepius was the healer archetype as it was experienced and manifested in Greek culture. So the archetype is universal in us and beyond us. And its manifestation varies according to person, place, culture.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, What you touched on there is something I I think about like the benefits of of, a polytheistic culture, so that all of these different aspects of life and the cosmos are are differentiated and given form uh, that are all integrated and coherent. Do you think this is my? I suspect that one of the reasons why we have so many mental health issues is because we don't have a coherent cosmology um, as a reflection of a coherent psyche. Like, I think that the coherent theology, mythology, cosmology uh, creates a coherent psyche in the individual um, because there's that reflection, the inner to the outer. Yes, uh, You can then relate to and uh, you can propitiate and um, honor, you know, all these different parts of yourself by honoring the different deities and, and things like that. Right. And if we don't have yes. that, I think it leads to this like fragmentation, disintegration. Uh, basically what we're talking about is like neurosis. Um, do you think that that's true? Do you think that's one of the things that we've lost in having lost the kind of old systems of healing with their, Models and cosmologies.
0: Uh, yeah, that's an excellent observation, and I agree with you. Uh, at its core, neurosis means to be in psychic conflict, and if we're neurotic but we don't know our parts, we can't even um, distinguish which which of our parts are in conflict with each other. If we consider ourselves a a, a monad, a single entity if we have understanding of our different parts of our multiplicity of uh, the fact that internally we we have sub personalities we have subselves uh, there are gods in every man goddesses in every woman there are many di- uh, or e- ego superego or s- small self and large self many different systems um, offer different understandings of how we are parts striving toward a unity and not exclusively but especially the greek system offers us a psychology mythology is a psychology of the human psyche and of the cosmos and all of the, what we call the gods and goddesses are principles in us that are always active and it they are much more accessible to our work, if we, for example, uh if a person has a pornography addiction, well, we can call you an addict and say you have obsessive-compulsive disorder and you've got a pathology. Or we can say you're troubled in your relationship to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sexuality, and you're struggling with that, and for some reason your psyche is. Attracted to the shadow of Aphrodite and worshipping the pornographic presentation instead of the beautiful and sacred presentation, as, as one example. Um, mm-hmm. as so get your,
1: get your soul right with Aphrodite and see what happens.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that is actually at the core of how I work with our uh, veterans, our warriors with post-traumatic stress disorder. The warrior archetype is universal. We all have it, but it's developed in a certain way, and only certain aspects of it are encouraged in our military. And it's suppressed in the civilian population. So many civilians don't know they have a warrior archetype and don't want to touch it because it has the word war in it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go there. And the warriors have had, through military training and experience, and especially the horrific combat of the modern era and our aggressive wars, their warrior archetype has been misused. Misused and misshapen. All right, we go to the Greek tradition. I use this all the time. They had two deities of war. There's Ares, the god of war, who only wants the experience. Homer called him the god who delights in slaughter. And some people do sign up for the military because... I want to be I want to know what it's like to kill somebody. That's okay. Aries.
1: Intense intense Aries aggression. Yeah.
0: Right right. Mm-hmm. And Athena on the other hand is the goddess of war. She didn't like it. She grieved it, she tried to avoid it, she remained diplomatic and she only used it uh, as a last resort for defense when it was of utmost necessity. Mm-hmm. All right. We ask our warriors not you've got post-traumatic stress disorder. You've got a, a, a broken brain and a, a nervous system disease. No. You are a warrior. You're partist, partaking of the warrior archetype. Well, which warrior did you serve while you were in the military, while you were in Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam? Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were a servant of Athena or Aries? And what experiences did you have that expressed that? hmm and if you feel like you are a servant of Aries, as most of them say about modern American wars, they were wrong. They were immoral. I have moral injury from the war. I was an aggressor, not a defender. Uh, I understand that my war was for not for the purpose of defense and preservation, the good warrior value, but aggression. Uh, we wanted their oil fields. We wanted their land. Uh, that's Aries. So our warriors realize I became a servant of Aries and I can continue to develop and transform myself and my identity, not to be a civilian. I can never be that again, but I can become a servant of Athena. Hmm. And so we do. We kind
1: of develop that archetype of Aries into serving something greater, serving harmony uh, rather than just mere aggression and violence. Yeah.
0: Yes, and with embracing what today we call moral injury, which of course was known in ancient times as well, when Jesus tried to warn us against moral injury. Uh, and in the Greek tradition, Socrates taught us that this is what the soul is. People didn't know, we didn't have the moder- our conception of the soul as our deep spiritual center until Socrates' teachings When he taught that the soul is that in us, which differentiates good from evil, right from wrong, and that we must live by the soul. And if we don't, if we pursue money making and fame and wealth instead of do our soul work, we're injuring ourselves and our society. If we do good, we are deepening and strengthening our soul. If we do harm, we're harming our soul. That's moral injury. We don't need new, complicated psychological definitions. And uh, Ares is always guilty of moral injury. That's what he does and what he gets off on. Mm. He's a berserker. Mm. Athena tries to avoid the moral injury. Socrates warns, never commit the moral injury because you are harming your own soul. And so, when our warriors embrace this, they become healers, they become servants, they practice atonement. I did wrong, so now I'm going to do good. I learned very difficult warrior wisdom from life. And so now I have to reverse it and be in good, meaningful, loving service to other veterans or to other people, to our society. And they Adopt the spiritual warrior identity and grow into it. And the more they do that, the more the traumatic wound shrinks. So the soul with the archetype restored can carry the traumatic wound without collapse. But the soul still trapped in the shadow of the archetype, the addicted to uh, uh, Aphrodite or the addicted to the berserker warrior and idealizing that those people are still trapped in their affliction and in their trauma and don't move on
1: yeah I, i think there's something important in that you know um we talk about integration as being so important but often it's an abstract concept like if you ask someone to describe what integration is, they'll go to another abstract concept like wholeness uh, or healing. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. but what are, we, what are we really talking about here? And again, the personification of the, the archetypes in these figures helps us, I think, to grasp the abstract concept. So right. the way you're talking about Aries and Athena, what I'm sensing there is when we've got Aries alone, he's, he's destructive, Uh, But when we pair, when we repair Aries and Athena, then we've got the archetype is uh, more harmonious, more balanced, um, less destructive, all of that, right? So there's like the integration there of Aries and Athena, the masculine and the feminine, uh, in that is uh, healing.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, So uh, I'll share a piece of a story that one of our warriors experienced on a Greek journey uh, with one of the most beautiful statements of achieving that integration that I've ever heard. Uh, So long story, I won't tell the whole thing now unless we want it. But uh, this, this man was a Vietnam combat veteran, and we did two major healing practices for him. One was doing dream incubation. Uh, and I could tell that story because he literally finished emptying out all of the combat nightmares that had been stored in his psyche and one night of incubation. Um, we also uh, did a ceremonial day where we walked through the ancient warrior sanctuary, uh, cemetery in Athens, and he prayed among those tombstones and then gave a speech On the very spot where Pericles gave his funeral oration during the Peloponnesian War, we read that, we heard what Pericles said about the duty of warriors to sacrifice for their homeland if the homeland is living up to its highest values. And then we invited this veteran to stand on the exact same spot and give his speech. He had arrived at our uh, journey as uh, identifying as A Vietnam veteran with PTSD. He gave this speech, and this is the the integration line was the, the way he ended his speech. And boy, it's not abstract. He said to our group and to some Greek people who had joined us witnessing this, from now on and forevermore, I am no longer a Vietnam veteran. From now on, I am a spiritual warrior whose place of service was in Vietnam. Huge identity shift on the spot that released him from the berserker, from the negative archetype, from the Vietnam combatant. And he hated that identity. Now I am a spiritual warrior. I'm growing into this archetypal identity. It can serve me and our country for the rest of my life. And in that identity, I can carry my history as a Vietnam combat veteran without shame or guilt or breakdown. But that's where I became a warrior. And that's where I learned the shadow of war and what we must never do to each other.
2: Mm.
0: So that's a beautiful example of a successful integration that has remained. This story is uh, at least 10 years old and he's, he's great. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. And what I also love is that it points out the power of uh, revisioning our story about what happened, who we are, um, broadening that, enriching it with, uh, yeah, with what, we, what we learn. It gives it a different kind of context. It doesn't change what happened, right? But it gives it a different right. context. Right. And it's, it's a larger context than it was. It was so narrowly defined earlier. It's like what Jung said, it's like, uh, we don't uh, cure our problems. We outgrow them by adding to our experience and knowledge and wisdom. Um, what happened, uh, seems smaller in comparison to who we are now, you know, what we've experienced. Yeah. While we were taking a break, I, picked up i've got this little book on the homeric hymns um and i was looking up uh yeah there's a nice little one to asclepios in here um but i was interested we were just talking about aries and the the wound of the warrior and uh i wonder if you've ever given hymns to some of these wounded warriors because i mean oh yes at at the end of the hymn it's like this beautiful prayer it says Blessed God, give me the courage to stand my ground within the safe laws of peace, shunning hostility and hatred and the fate of a violent death. I mean, these could be healing prayers for people, you know.
0: Oh, I use them in my veteran retreats for sure. Uh, I use the the hymn to Aries. That's a fascinating uh, hymn because, as you know, the first long stanza talks about all of Aries' power and his weapons and his his glory, and then the second stanza reverses it and warns people against becoming drunk with Aries power. Uh, And so, yes, warriors love that. And they will say, when I was young, the first stanza is what attracted me. I wanted that power and glory and honor. And only the hard way did I learn that I need to resist that call, that temptation. So, yes, I use that. Uh, we use these hymns to Asclepius all the time. I translated it from the ancient Greek myself, actually, and uh, use my translation uh, all the time with my groups and myself. So we do and use the the hymns to invoke the god powers.
1: And yeah, uh, for,
0: again, for our listeners, they date to about 800 BCE. So we're using prayers that are about 3,000 years old, which also helps connect us. To the spiritual archetypal world that we share with humanity
1: yeah which are you know um one of our root systems right the other the other root system we could say is uh uh, judaism right which you mentioned in the book that we've got these kind of two root systems or streams that uh western culture arises out of but we were talking before we started recording uh just you know, man to man talking, you are know, seeing all my musical instruments here. So we are talking about music and how we yes. incorporate music into our work and, um, and talking about the hymns. Uh, now, we don't know what the hymns sounded like, but have you come across anyone in your travels, a Greek person who has tried to maybe reconstruct the hymns according to their musical tradition?
0: Uh, Not the hymns in particular. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I I haven't heard that. But I have definitely heard. I'll take that back. Yes, I have. Uh, There uh, there are Greek musicians and music scholars who have studied ancient texts, rebuilt uh, ancient instruments to the best of their ability, according to the old instructions, and studied the hymns and also studied uh, the notations that left behind or the descriptions and philosophy of what music was like, or studied Pythagorean, um, the Pythagorean, uh, mathematical for that expressed the musical forms of those times and that are working to recreate them. So the answer is yes to that one. And I have heard some of the performances, um, there are some CDs out of ancient Greek music that are these recreated versions. Uh, they are they're amazing to meditate with and pray with. So I recommend them, people, for that purpose. And generalizing from that, uh, I've been working especially on bringing back the Asclepian tradition. But as we're both aware of and, and sharing... The Orphic tradition, the Dionysian tradition, the Eleusinian mysteries—that tradition—are uh, are all coming back, and there are healers in Greece who are working in these various traditions, studying the ancient ways, and working um, in tandem to my work to help bring ancient healing into our modern world. Hmm.
1: I wonder if we could um, maybe wrap up our conversation. Uh... By talking a little bit about the Orphic tradition, I, I haven't uh, gotten to that part in the book yet, but from what I understand, Orpheus uh, was a musician and he would uh, travel to the underworld and he would come back with these healing songs, something mm-hmm. like that. Can you yeah. expand on that or correct me if I've got it wrong?
0: Uh... You have you don't have it wrong, and we don't know that much about how the original Orphic traditions and rituals were practiced. Uh, a very interesting thing is, while we do have the Asclepian formulae and rituals, we don't have the, the Eleusinian mysteries of Demeter and Persephone. The secrets were never revealed. We don't know the Orphic mysteries. We don't know how they were practiced. We do know a little bit. Uh, So, and this is also more than one particular god power. This is universal. The the story of Orpheus, of course, is that he was a musician. His beloved Eurydice died on their wedding day, and he went down to the underworld. And with his music, charmed Hades, such that Hades released Eurydice to come back to the upper world, on the condition that Orpheus didn't look back until they got to the light. And he made it almost to the to the surface, but then he couldn't stand his curiosity and his longing anymore. So he looked back and he lost her forever. Uh, And he lived in grief the rest of his life. And he the stories of his death are not happy. He was torn to to pieces by wild animals. All right. So that's the the central myth of the Orphic tradition, universal in that myth. Universal may be the wrong word. Very common in that myth is the the journey to the underworld. That happened in the Orphic tradition, Demeter and Persephone. Of course, Persephone went down to the underworld. Odysseus trying to come home from the Trojan War in the Odyssey, had to go down into the underworld to get directions for how to get home. Aeneas also, Ajax also, Heracles also. So, The descent to the underworld in Greek was called katabasis, going down under, not the return, the going down. Kata. Ask somebody in Greece, uh, in a restaurant where their bathroom is, it's kato, kato. Downstairs in the basement. So katabasis is the journey down under, whether it's to the restroom or to Hades (laughs) or both. What we know about, uh, well... Several of these traditions and their rituals all included a descent to the underworld. We know about the Orphic tradition that included the descent to the underworld, as Orpheus had to make, uh, hearing music, participating in music, uh, music being a healing force that finally releases them from the underworld, and also some kind of dismemberment. Orpheus was torn uh, apart, and Orpheus was also related to Dionysus, who was uh, torn to part in his birth and then had to be put together again. So dismemberment and descent into the underworld to encounter music and the spirit of music to bring you back from the underworld and also teach you of the immortality of your soul, even as we go through difficult, challenging, destructive physiological experiences. Was yeah. so all oh, this is part of the this mystery, the sh- and the uh, the affirmation that partly comes from the Orphic mysteries that we are both psyche and soma, we are body and soul, and they're intimately re- related. And if we separate body from soul, the body dies. But in the Orphic mysteries, they were reintegrated. So, and the soul of the people were taught that the soul is eternal, and. Uh, is restored, and is the central aspect of your being, not your body and your your physical well-being.
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, as you're describing, it, I just couldn't help but think of uh, the shamanic archetype, the descent to the underworld, dismemberment, um, reconstitution, music as a central element of healing, divination. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. So, we don't, we kind of know some of the elements of the Orphic tradition, but we don't have a particular description of the ritual.
0: That's accurate.
1: Yeah. Uh So when you're incorporating that into your work, uh, how does how does that come into it? What form does it take?
0: Ah, with trauma survivors, uh, any trauma survivors, they feel that they have been dismembered. They're in pieces. Trauma shatters our inner logos. Uh, So they identify with being dismembered and that they feel like they're living in such a condition and learning about the underworld journey. The poet Ezra Pound translated the first book of the Odyssey and it's a beautiful translation as Homer rendered it until the end when he, has, when he has Tiresias, the prophet, say to Odysseus, You came down into the underworld a second time? Why? Our warriors r- recognize I've been dismembered, or another trauma survivors, I've been dismembered by violence. And I've been plunged and I was plunged into the underworld, and I'm stuck there. And I need to descend a second time willingly, Mm -hmm. like Odysseus traveling down to get his directions home, like Orpheus saying, Eurydice, my anima, my psyche, my feminine soul is down in the underworld, and I have to go down there with courage and with music and the arts. To rescue her and bring it back and reintegrate. Mm. So, uh, and we study the other mysteries as well. Um, we use Demeter and Persephone, and we go to Alepsis and uh, the the cave of Hades is there, where Hades took Persephone down, and where Demeter laid outside and grieved and grieved and grieved. We also go there, and people sit in the cave entrance and they talk to Hades and they. Cry about their losses and they achieve catharsis, they're leaving their toxins, they're giving their toxins back to the underworld so they could come out clean. So, in all of these ways, we use the myths to identify our own afflictions and to reveal uh, ritual guidance uh, that uh, we can use on our soul journeys to achieve release and reintegration. And we use, uh, or we use music in the arts to, to yeah, express
1: sure. it. That's the thing that is uh, kind of unique about the Orphic journey. When I go back to retrieve my feminine soul who's suffering in hell, in Hades, I go down not as Hercules, not as the, the hero, the warrior, the brute, but I go down as, as an artist, as a musician. It's like a different attitude. There's something in there about um enchantment. Um right? Yeah. Like a, Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you draw on any of those threads and help me out here? Like there's something about that attitude that's required in the second descent, right?
0: Yes. Uh when Hercules went down, he wrestled with Hades. He was still the brute. The strongest mortal who was going to wrestle to win his way, but right, Orpheus went down uh, in with a gentle, compassionate attitude. Uh, he he met Cerberus, the three-headed dog, and he charmed him with his flute. So he had to have his arts in place in order to make the descent and use them as his tools for calming the forces that terrified him. So what's the translation for us is practice your arts, find find an art and use it. Um, And so many of the people who go through these processes in one way or the other become far more creative. They come out with poetry or singing songs or um, dancing uh, and devote themselves from the descent on to live a creative rather than a destructive life and to be in positive loving service rather than forceful violent service.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. There's some one way to translate it too, in terms of like archetypal psychology is that uh, for a man at a certain stage in a man's healing or integration process, he's going to have to uh, invoke the lover archetype in order to, save his soul basically um and robert Bly talked about that like in a man's second half of life the call of the soul a man will often confuse it and get a confusion of levels and he'll his lover will manifest in going after a a younger woman or something when robert Bly said if you ever feel that impulse as a middle-aged man start painting yep right right Like, find the right outlet for that lover impulse towards arts and creativity and all of that. Yeah.
0: Yes. That's right. Uh, And another dimension to the archetypal perspective is that, well, Robert Moore suggests that in the male psyche, the warrior awakens first and the lover after. And he suggests in the the women, it's the reverse. Uh, And it seems accurate to the life cycle. So we men are rough animals who want expression of that first, which attracts us to military and other violent activities. And after we pass through that and keep maturing, it's when the lover in the psyche wakes up and then we can integrate the lover and the warrior. We truly need to use the arts and introduce the lover into warrior consciousness and preparation much earlier. Mm-hmm. Are th- our tradition doesn't do that, but uh, as we both know, other traditions did. Jap- the Japanese samurai were also the greatest haiku poets and landscape painters, and no theater dancers and actors, calligraphers and calligraphers. Yeah. Right. The Celtic tradition said, "No sword without your drum."
1: Yeah, or don't give a man a sword before you've taught him how to dance. Right. Variations right. like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. And of course, Native Americans were. All artists, they all danced and painted and built their their shields and their drums and decorated uh, their costume. So we would benefit and we would humanize our warriors and give them much better chance of healing after service if we gave them the arts as part of their warrior preparation. Mm. Give the humanities along with the, the soldiering arts so that it develops in balance rather than take these vulnerable young people and teach them the shadow warrior and teach them to release the berserker and then leave them doomed with that to try to find their own ways home without the arts and without beauty. They need it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just thinking like mythologically, you know, after the dismemberment being torn apart, like Venus is the the power the god power that brings things together it's like she's like the connector right and right yeah that's beautiful yeah. i mean gosh yeah. ed what,
0: I, one more I quick um really
1: long. Yeah, we I can check in with you about time but
0: yeah um i do need to go i have um a, the other kind of work to do in a few minutes yeah yeah me too yeah um but let one fight. last comment about uh Venus, uh, Aphrodite, there's a wonderful, well, we know that Ares and Aphrodite had an affair. That's one of the famous myths. That, And the other gods caught them and wrapped them in a golden chain. Uh, but what we forget is that Aphrodite became impregnated by Ares. They had a child. Remember their child's name by any chance?
1: No, wait for okay. it
0: harmony uh harmonia 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 harmony let's absorb this harmony is the beloved daughter of the union of the warrior and the lover archetype yeah yeah that's so great yeah
1: yeah that's a mic drop moment it's like that's it that's the formula you want harmony That's, you know, I didn't know about um, Armonia. I'd never heard of her. Uh, One morning I woke up after my yoga practice, I sat down and do some singing and chanting. And this chant came to me. Armonia. And I was just singing this word, Armonia, not even knowing if it was a real Greek word or not, or if I was just making it up. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, I was just kind of having this inspired practice. And then, of course, I go to uh, Google Mm -hmm. and the the modern oracle, and I go, (laughs) Harmonia, just typing it in, see what comes up. And, of course, I get the whole story about Harmonia, who, in her depictions, also is wrapped by a serpent, so echoing Mm -hmm. uh, the caduceus of Asclepius, so something about healing, transformation, rising of energy, I mean...
2: Ugh. when yeah. things
1: like that come together it's just it's an affirmation that the archetypal reality is real yes and that oh. we can participate in it or not participate it but it's always happening anyway
0: yes right
1: yeah and better Absolutely. to participate in it because it gives us um images to work with figures to work with to relate to uh and it makes life just richer
0: doesn't it oh so much richer yes yes then we're with socrates that we're tending our souls rather than pursuing money making Mm. yeah there's no richness in the uh, modern american advertising system says that uh, you want the good life buy this car no that the ancient values are real and we are invited to serve and pursue goodness and truth and beauty. And those are rich and really soul-satisfying. And the worldly pursuits are not. As my father was dying, he didn't say very many wise things uh, through his life. But as he was dying, he did say to me on his deathbed, tell everybody My last words from the end tell everybody nothing matters, nothing they're looking at, nothing they're pursuing, none, none, all the nonsense of life that people spend their lives chasing matter at all. Now I see it. Saw it in the last couple of days of his life, and that's what he wanted to scream from the edge of the grave, do what matters, just love each other because nothing else really counts.
1: Great. Right. Well, let's end it there. Yeah, leave people yeah. with that. Good. Thanks okay. so much, Ed. Um, I'm, I'm so happy that uh, you're around, that you're mm. still writing, and so grateful that you make yourself available to younger people like me. Like, you've just helped me in my, um, on my path, being a, a servant to soul myself, to better understand, to point me in other directions, to kind of help me out on my journey. Um, I think it's probably saved me a lot of time, a lot of confusion, because you have such a great way of, uh, putting things together in a concise and poetic manner that, uh, it's, it's soul food and it's medicine for the soul. So thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. Um, I'm honored to be in this position and, uh, To those of my generation, stay out here with good younger people and be elders and teachers and guides. Don't just retire and indulge yourself. It's really important that we stay and remain and that we have the solidarity across our generations to make the path easier and wiser for all of us. So thank you for saying that. And you just gave me soul satisfaction.
1: Mm. All right. Well, bless you.
0: Bless you too. Take care, Ed. Talk soon. Take care. See you down the road. Thank Uh, you. Bye-bye. Blessings. Bye.
1: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite app. Share it with a friend or leave us a review. If you're interested in joining the conversation, head on over to the Medicine Path online community and School of Soul Studies at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you, may the wind be always at your back, may the sun shine warm upon your face, and the rains fall soft upon your fields, until we meet again on the Medicine Path.